Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. And let me ask you to turn to your Bibles, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. I am not restarting the series on David yet. I hope to get there in January. Uh, but we are still in our series on the spiritual disciplines called Practicing the Art of Reception. And if you're keeping track, this is the 11th message in that series. And this message is entitled, uh, Pushing God's Buttons. Have you, um, let, let me just read the chapter, the passage. 1 Samuel chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Do you ever watch football? Do you watch football on television at all? If you watch, we watch a lot of college football. Um, If you watch football, you're bound to see a beer commercial or two. And there's been a series of beer commercials, I won't name the company, uh, where they've had the the scene is of of a, a group of buddies, maybe a half a dozen buddies, and they're at a football game or some sort of sporting event, and they're they're it's it's third and long, and the team needs to make a first down or it's it's you know to make a touchdown at some critical moment. You don't actually see the team on the field; you're just seeing the guys sitting in a row, and and they've all, they're all drinking the same kind of beer. Have you seen this? And so they start to turn the label of the beer bottle out to the front, and then they're nudging each other. Front. And one of them's looking at the other and said, that's stupid. And they go, it's only stupid if it doesn't work. And so they all turn their, their labels out to the front, 
and the team scores, and it's really huge, you know. And you see all that kind of stuff on television and in sports, especially, all the time. It's just superstition. And American life is permeated with it. It's only stupid if it doesn't work, right? American life and life and human life in general is permeated with all kinds of superstitions. Did you know that you can buy alien abduction insurance? <laughs> you can. There's a company in Great Britain. Now, it's probably gone up. This is an old illustration. But for $156 a year, this London company will insure you in the event that you are nabbed by E.T., Now, if you are merely abducted by aliens, they'll pay you $312,000. But if you are abducted and partially eaten, they'll pay you $468,000. The only deal is, is you have to prove it. So thank God for digital cameras and cell phones, right? Superstition. A belief or practice resulting from ignorance... Fear of the unknown, trust in magic or chance, or a false conception of causation. A false conception of causation. It's only stupid if it doesn't work. Superstition misreads the spiritual situation, and it attempts to misuse God. Superstition blames God for things that men do. I was uh, counseling with someone who was in a crisis in their marriage some time ago, and they were saying something to the effect of, why is God letting this happen to me? This is God's fault. I mean, I did this and this and this and this, and so this wasn't supposed to happen. And he was, having, uh, he was being basically tortured by his wife. And I said, emotionally tortured, and I said, you're blaming God for your wife's sins. Superstition blames God for things that men do. It is an attempt, and this is, this is probably the, the key idea here, is an, superstition or magic or pagan spirituality is an attempt to use the divine in order to gain a human advantage. To manipulate the heavenly in order to control the earthly. In other words, superstition tries to push God's buttons and get definable, uh, consistent responses. But God will not be pushed. We've been talking about the spiritual disciplines, and one of the spiritual disciplines is the life is the guided life. Learning how to receive guidance from God, guidance from the Holy Spirit. The search for guidance is not the same as superstition. And and I'm going to be talking about guidance for at least this Sunday and next Sunday and maybe the one after that. The search for guidance is not the same as superstition. Because the one seeks to serve the other to be served. The one is obedience. Seeking guidance is really the search for obedience in an attempt to do God's will. The other is manipulation, an attempt to get God to do our will. You see, God uses us for His purposes. 
He will not be manipulated for hours. So as we go on this search for guidance, we need to be careful about becoming superstitious Christians. And usually, to, to understand or begin to search for guidance, there's some sort of crisis involved in our lives. That's really the wrong time. You ought to be searching for guidance all the time so that when the crisis comes, you're used to hearing it and responding to it. But it takes a crisis. It usually takes a crisis to reveal how we think about God and how we approach Him in trying to understand His guidance for us. And Israel was in a crisis in this part of 1 Samuel. Her crisis revealed that she was being superstitious instead of spiritual. And so what I want to do today is to look at how Israel faced this crisis and learn from her mistakes so that we won't fall into the same kind of superstitious relationship with God. So let me give you the historical context a little bit. Eli, he was mentioned there in the passage, has been the judge of Israel. He's not been a terribly effective judge, but he's been the judge, the spiritual and in many cases, legal leader of Israel. He is old, he has grown fat and spiritually insensitive. Samuel, who was a child who was a child born as a kind of miracle, his mother had been barren, and God finally opened her womb in response to her prayers. He was a very spiritual young a child and then young man, and his mother had dedicated him to God's service, and so he had been taken on as kind of a a, a Padawan learner, so to speak, with, with Eli, and grown up there in the, uh, in the uh, precincts of the tabernacle with Eli. Hophni and Phinehas are Eli's corrupt sons. They have been exposed up to this point in the story as spiritual slicks and abusers of their, their power. Eli has been shown to be indulgent. He has refused to confront his sons, although God has confronted Eli over this. There's been a prophecy of judgment on the house of Eli that was rendered through the young man Samuel. It's one of the first times he heard God speak was this judgment that was coming on Eli's house. And the Philistines, the perennial enemies of Israel, are growing in power under their king Aphek. And so that crisis was, as crises tend to do, exposing how Israel was thinking about God. And there was a disconnect between what they had been taught and how they were behaving. They wore God's jersey, but they weren't necessarily on his team. They weren't obedient to his commands. One of the first things that we need to do when seeking God's guidance is to ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. The quality of the answers that we get depends upon the quality of the questions that we ask. Israel was asking the right question. When they were facing a defeat, which was a situation to them that was totally perplexing, they said, why? Why did the Philistines win? Why did God allow us to experience defeat? Why did this really bad thing happen? Do you know the kinds of things that bring you to spiritual defeat? Do you know what they are? They're the kinds of situations that expose our weaknesses. 
It's going into a situation where we have a reasonable expectation of victory and losing 4,000 guys on the battlefield. Israel had a reasonable expectation of victory, and they lost. They lost badly. It's like getting a bad performance review at work and not expecting it, and it blows you out of the saddle. It's like losing your temper with your teenager for the umpteenth time when you promised you wouldn't do that again, and you'd even talk to God about it. It's finding that the spiritual resources that you have to meet the challenge are inadequate. So for the people of God, these are opportunities for growth. And when they happen, we need to be asking the right question. They are designed to develop the character of Christ in us. I think I quoted from this passage last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul has been describing all of these pressures, these great pressures that he's under. And he says... This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So there's an opportunity for us to grow, but we have to approach it with the right attitude and with the right questions. Once we've asked the right question, we have to be open to the truth. We have to be willing to hear the actual facts in the situation. The Israelites asked the right question. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? But they didn't ask the right source, and they didn't wait for an answer. They weren't open to the truth. If you're still in 1 Samuel, you might want to turn back one page and you'll find chapter 3, verse 19. And it talks a little bit about Samuel, his reputation in Israel. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. That is what the storyteller is telling us right before the defeat with the Philistines. So what, what's he saying to us? Israel knows where to go. Israel knows that there is a prophet of God living, amongst the tab, living at the tabernacle, serving under Eli. They know where they can get a reliable word from God, but they don't go and ask him. If they really wanted to know what was wrong, they could have found out, but they weren't open to the truth. A similar kind of thing had happened to the Israelites many uh, hundreds of years before this that's recorded in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua, you will recall, is the book that talks about the conquest of the promised land as Joshua and the Israelites follow God and they're going to take over the promised land. And they are defeated by a little bitty tribe called Ai and they can't understand why. And Joshua goes in chapter 7 and tries to find out why. And God has to explain to him, there's sin in the camp, Joshua. I gave you very specific instructions about what to do, and this guy disobeyed them. Joshua was willing to hear the truth and to respond to it. The Israelites in this situation under Eli were not. In Proverbs 19.3, it says this, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Excuse me. Um, sometimes 
sometimes ministers, people come to ministers with tragic stories. And, and in the middle of their tragic story, they're really upset with God. And the minister asks some questions, and, and then he has to say something like this. I hate to tell you this, but it isn't God's fault, it's yours. You made the bed, and now you're having to lie in it. And here's what you're going to have to do to get out of it. And a lot of times they don't want to hear that. They're really, really upset, really, really angry. When we find ourselves in deep distress, we've got to take care not to rage at God. Um, we need to be asking him, okay, God, what is it in my own soul that brought this on? What is, what is it in my own behavior, uh, my thinking, that is perhaps ungodly or unbiblical that brought this on? And then we have to be willing to wait with an open heart willing sometimes to ask someone to advise us who can be objective and can give us direction, willing to hear the truth with a readiness to obey. So the first bad thing we do when we're in a crisis and we're looking for help is we're not willing to, to hear the truth. We're not willing to ask the right questions and hear the truth. The second thing we do is we will fail to listen with a will to obey. We might hear the truth. But instead of hearing it with a willingness to, okay, God, what do I need to do in order to respond to you in this situation? Instead of doing that, it's like, okay, what do I need to do in order to get you to do what I want you to do? God, what do I need to do in order to push your buttons or to pull the right lever with you to get you to do what I want you to do? See, that's what the Israelites were doing in this situation in chapter 4 in 1 Samuel. To manipulate. They were trying to manipulate God. Manipulate means to control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means to one's own advantage. To control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means to one's own advantage. Look back in 1 Samuel 4 at the second part of verse 3. They come and they ask, why did the Lord bring the defeat on us? Then the next sentence is, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Do you remember, I just, when I saw that, I remembered the, uh, the scene in the first Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark movie when the government officials come and they're going to they're gonna recruit Indiana Jones to go do this. And they start talking about the Ark and, and, and he has this big book and they, he opens up this big ancient book with clasps on it and there's this picture of the Ark with the Hebrews carrying it, and there's like beams of lightning shooting out in, in all the directions. And, and they're talking about how, yes, it's whoever has this, they, no army can stand before them. And Indy, Indy's friend says, yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. <laughs> it's just, that's exactly what they're doing here. They're going, hey, I, well, I know. Go get the God box thing. You know that thing? Go get it. And bring it. And we'll take it out. 
Put it on the first string. Make him the quarterback. We'll win, you know. It worked for Moses. Well, yeah, it worked for Moses because Moses was being obedient. Because that's what God told Moses to do. Moses was being obedient in all those other ways. But he didn't tell these guys to do this. They were being superstitious. They were saying, if I can just go get this and put this out there, then, you know, God's got to come through. That's not biblical spirituality. That's magic or an attempt at magic. That's like, you know, turning the label of your, we'll say on your behalf, Coke bottle, you know, and saying, my team's going to win. And it reveals a really serious misunderstanding of, uh, of God. Let me give you three ways that we look at God that are, are basically pagan, okay? They're not, these are not, a, not biblical views of God. Um, a pagan, superstitious view of God. Number one, um, he's a personal deity. He's my personal deity. You know, and we, and we, we can kind of get kind of close to that. You know, I'm in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus and me. And that's kind of making him like the house God. In ancient times and, and still today, you'll find places that they have house gods. And it's the God of this and the God of that and the God of the other. You know, it depends on what your family's in. If your family is in, uh, you know, corn farming, it's the, the, the house God of the corn harvest. And they'll have little, little idols, you know, little, little shrines in the house. And they'll bow down to these idols. And this, this idol is supposed to produce this particular effect for me. Um, so I've kind of got a personal deity. He's like my pet dog. You know, I feed him and care for him as long as he pleases me. But if he starts tearing up the furniture, he goes to the pound. That's a pagan view of God. The, the, the real God is not a personal pet. He is a personal master. He's the one that we say, I don't bow the knee to anybody else, but I bow the knee to you, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do, even if it hurts, even if I don't like it. Second um, misunderstanding, pagan view of God, is, you know, God is, God is the blessing machine. He's the blessing machine. He's my personal blessing machine. His only purpose for taking up space in my life is to bring me health, wealth, and power. And that produces, that, that attitude can be seen, rather, in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. If you want to turn there to Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, you'll see something fascinating. And this still goes on. Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. This is right after the stoning of Stephen. And then the church is persecuted and scattered. And then uh, Peter is out doing ministry. And he runs across this man that the Bible calls Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And God has been... uh, doing powerful things through 
through Peter, and it's, or rather through Philip. And just pick up in verse 12. But they, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John down to them. So, okay, we're sending the heavy artillery down there, guys. This is Peter and John, the apostles who were closest to Jesus. And Peter and John prayed for these people that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw, this is Simon the sorcerer now, that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And look how Peter responded. Verse 20, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Wow. Simon, you're in a mess, man. You are really in bad shape. You are attempting to manipulate God. You have totally misunderstood the basic message of the gospel. Well, how do we do the same thing? How do we do the same thing? If we get it in our heads that God has to respond to a certain thing that we do, if we just do it in the right way, then we're starting to think like this pagan. Sometimes we can get it in our heads that it's like, okay, if I go to church, you know, if I'm there every week, every time the doors open, God has to respond in way A, B, or C. If I have these regular prayers that I pray in the same way every time, at the same place every day, and I say them over and over and over again, God's got to respond in a certain way. No, He doesn't. If I can quote this particular scripture verse, and I can say it enough times in this particular situation, then God has to respond in a certain way. No, He doesn't. That's pagan, superstitious thinking about God. It is an attempt to control God rather than be controlled by God. The third way that we uh, get messed up with God, a pagan view of God, is what I call the moody blues God. The moody blues. I think that's probably because I'm, so, um, I'm so prone to melancholy myself. Um, but... It's the idea that God is capricious. He can be angry one minute and kind the next. He's a moody God. You never can tell what He's going to do, so be sure you do all the right rituals so that He won't have the grounds for treating you bad. And that produces people who live in fear, in constant guilt, 
on the one hand or in pride or religiosity on the other. Those are pagan views of God, superstitious understandings of God. Matthew Henry was talking about this, and I've, he, his English is so old that I've kind of paraphrased it. So he says it, this is what he says. It is common for those that have divorced themselves from the basics of religion to develop a great fondness for the rituals and visible practices of it. Those that deny the power of godliness often have a high regard for the form of it. The church is talked up. The Bible is quoted and promoted with a great deal of zeal by multitudes that have no regard at all for the Lord of the church and the God of the Bible. It's as if a fiery concern for the name of Christianity would atone for a profane contempt of the real thing. And the thing is, is we don't have to do any of that stuff to earn God's love. God's love is given to us freely and abundantly and consistently and faithfully and loyally, and it never stops. Romans 8, chapter, I mean, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. Jamie mentioned in the Sunday school class that sometimes he felt like he was preaching to the choir, and I know that feeling really well because I know that you guys know this this passage but it bears repeating and reminding ourselves about it Romans chapter 8 verse 31 what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us all the time, consistently. Jesus Christ, at the right hand of the Father, constantly intercedes for you and I so that when we're messing up, he's already in God's ear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? Skip to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we think we've got to manipulate Him. We think, we've, we think that He is capricious. Are you kidding? He loves us completely and unconditionally and He never stops. And all that He wants us to do is respond to that love. Well, preacher, what am I supposed to do when life just blows up and it's just horrible? It is an opportunity to depend on Him and to grow deeper in that love. It is an opportunity to find a new way to obey so that God can peel off another layer of our flesh, so to speak, and conform us into the image of Christ. It is is so hard 
to listen to um, to listen to people in crisis and to just hear the agony of soul that's in crisis and and you're feeling with them and you you want to fix the problem you know you just want to fix the problem and make it go away and a lot of times that's not God's purpose you know God's purpose is to do a deeper work in us so that we may learn to totally depend on God and nothing else It's one of the things that worries me about the Christian entertainment culture um, because if the Christian entertainment culture is all that a person knows about God, he or she might think, wow, you know, I'm wearing my cross necklace. I got my fish earrings. I'm grooving to Christian rap. Like, why did God let me wreck my new Camaro? It's just a whole lot deeper than that. Look back in 1 Samuel. Chapter 4, again, 7 through 11. You know, the Philistines are afraid a God has come into the camp. And, and you get down to the end of the story, and the Israelites are horrendously defeated. Why, God, is you, are you allowing your chosen people to be horrendously defeated? Um, when they thought they were doing, you know, the right thing. The God of the Bible is a holy, righteous, and absolutely just God. And He will not ignore or wink at sin in the life of a believer or in the life of a church. He will go out of His way to expose it. Even if it brings discredit in the short run, He will expose an individual a church, and the religion of the cross to defeat and ridicule before he will allow his children to deceive themselves about sin or treat him like a house god. He just won't allow it. The God of the Bible is also discerning. He is discerning. He knows more about our motives than we do. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, You do not have because you do not ask, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He knows. He knows better than we do. So when we're asking him, we need to be saying, God, I'm going to ask you for this thing, but I don't even know if my own motives are pure. So I pray that you would help me see my own motives and that you would cleanse them. And if they're wrong, help me to see it. And move away from it. The God of the Bible is holy and righteous and just and discerning. He is also kind and generous. James, again, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Doesn't say when, but it will be given. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So 
when seeking guidance, ask the right questions. Ask the right source. Be willing to obey. And don't attempt to manipulate God. Let me close with this story. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, there's a man named Parker Palmer, and he was a, Palmer is a Quaker. I don't know much about Quakers. I learned something from this story. It tells a story of uh, how he went to his friends, his trusted Quaker friends, to get advice about a significant decision. He had been offered the opportunity to be the president of a, a higher, an, an institution of higher education. And he just thought, he was just like, yeah, I ought to do that. But in, in his community, he had, they have a tradition that they call a clearness committee. I would just call it a discernment uh, gathering. A process in which the group refrains from giving you advice, but spends three hours asking you honest, open questions to help you discover what's really motivating you, what's really driving you. Can you imagine that? When was the last time you had a major decision to make and you, you let a half a dozen really godly people spend three hours asking you questions? How smart would that be? He said, so all the, the questions were very easy until somebody simply asked, what would you like most about being a president? And he said, the simplicity of that question loosened me up from my head and lowered me down into my heart. And I remember pondering for at least a full minute before I could even begin to respond. And then as I began to respond, it was like, well, I would not like having to give up my writing and my teaching. And I would not like the politics of the presidency, never knowing who your friends are. I would not like having to glad hand people that I do not respect simply because they have money. I would not, and the questioner interrupted again and said, let me remind you that I asked you what you would most like. And Palmer said, I'm getting there, you know, I, I, but I'm working to it. And he said, I resumed my sullen but honest litany. And one more time, the questioner said, yeah, but what would you like? And he said, an answer came from the very bottom of my barrel, an answer that appalled even me as I spoke it. Well, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. He said, I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. So they didn't laugh, but they went into a long and serious silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and cracked me wide open. Parker? Can you think of an easier way to get your name in the paper? <laughs> and he said that was all it took. I called the educational institution and I withdrew my name from consideration. He said, had I taken that job, 
it would have been very bad for me and a disaster for the school. So what's the difference between a superstitious approach to God and one that God will honor? Between pushing God's buttons and listening for his voice. Someone who will ask the right questions. Someone who will ask in the right place or the right person. Not an Eli, but a Samuel. Someone who is receptive to the truth when they hear it and ready to obey. Now, it could be that um, you're here and you're seeking God. But you really have not been interested in the obedient part. The part of saying, okay, I get this, that it's through Jesus Christ and it's about him dying for my sins so that I can have this access to God and I need to ask him into my life and obey him. And that may be hard for you to accept. But I believe that if that's the case, God is speaking to you and you know that you need to welcome him in. So let me give you an opportunity to do that. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are that we have these stories in your book. How grateful we are that you, um, you called out storytellers. Um, people who are gifted with words, with language, and with the pen. And you inspired them to write these stories down. Where would we be without them? We worship you and we glorify you because we see in these stories a God who cares very deeply for us and extends himself on our behalf. Um, Give us hearts to respond. And now I'm just going to be quiet for a moment. And If you need to ask God for wisdom, ask him. If you need to ask him to change your life and to come in your heart, ask him. Don't wait. If you need to ask to be forgiven for sins and made new, ask him. Don't wait. Now, Father, we ask you to forgive us if we have understood you or responded to you in a superstitious way in some kind of magical way. Help us to be people who are obedient as we seek your guidance, willing, as soon as we understand it, to take it and to do what you've shown us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's worship together, please. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.